Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. It is Wednesday, September 8th, live from my apartment and his attic. This is the Ben Jarofsky Show. I am DJ Nate, filling in for the one and only Dr. D. Today on the program, we have the great Monroe Anderson and political strategist Jason Lee. And now, your host, Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Back to the Past Wednesday, and here's why. But before I go further into why calling it back to the past Wednesday, let's just shout out to DJ Nate, who's sitting in for Dr. D. Dr. D's got a great contract uh, with the Ben Jarofsky show. It's kind of like Johnny Carson back in the day. Every now and then, Dr. D uh, just, I'm going, taking the day off. Don't bother me. <laughs> He's a superstar, Dr. G. One of the, Dr. D, one of the great producers of all time. So he took the day off. DJ Nate was nice enough to sit in for him. All is well in the universe. All right. Back to the subject at hand. Back to the past Wednesday, and here's why. I went back to the 90s last night. Years 93, 96, and 98 to be exact. The Clinton years. Yes, I was watching episode one of Impeachment, Ryan Murphy's epic 10-part series about the Monica Lewinsky got monumentally and unfairly used and abused and demeaned and denigrated by America's story. You know that story, America. Stop acting like you had nothing to do with it. Starting with our president. Bill Clinton, what a sleazebag he is. And he is going to be exposed in all his baggy sleaziness. A word about Ryan Murphy, producer of the show, big fan of his work, most of it anyway. Pose, OJ series, American Horror Story. Ryan Murphy gets at the heart of things. He's got a sixth sense for the slimy underbelly of American politics, part of politics where we pretend it's one thing, even though it's something else, the hypocrisy of it all. And that's what's at the heart of the Lewinsky-Clinton affair. Everybody involved was full of shit. Republicans who launched the impeachment like they were morally outraged by Bill Clinton's lying when it was just an opportunity to tear Clinton down. And those same Republicans lie all the freaking time. And Clinton especially Clinton. I cannot stand the sight of Bill Clinton these days with his, oh, shucks, I'm just Bill Clinton. He uses people and throws them away when they're of no use to him. And then he's so insincere as he tries to act sincere, even as he's pretending he's just like his Elvis little imitation that he does. Oh, God, I'm Bill Clinton. I feel your pain. Man, he has ruined it for Democrats absolutely ruined it. After Clinton, nobody believes a word that Democrats say. And how can you? I did not have sex with that woman. It's like the press is so outraged, the national press that is, they're so outraged over the lies of Donald Trump. The national press, the mainstream press, keeps track of Trump's lies. They count them up. And then they're outraged that the public's not outraged. Well, why should be the public be outraged by the blatant lies of Trump? Their attitude is that all politician lies. Trump is just honest about lying, which is really weird, I know, but it's kind of how a lot of people in America look at it. 
And when they say that all politicians lie, who are they thinking about? They're thinking about Bill Clinton. I did not have sex with that woman. By the way, the national press. Man, the national press. They look terrible on this Ryan Murphy show. First episode, anyway. I only saw one episode. Only one episode has been dropped. They're so sarcastic and condescending the way they question Paula Jones. And they're just so full of themselves. They just sneer at her. What about a bunch of elitist snobs? Remember Paula Jones? She's the reason the whole investigation of Bill Clinton's sex life got started. And Ryan Murphy is brilliant at setting it up. Republican operatives see a Paula Jones press conference and they say, let's get her some real attorneys. Let's get her to sue the president. So they hook her up with some Republican big shot attorneys in Washington. And that gets the ball rolling. Paula is driven by the ego of her husband, who's a struggling actor and wants to sort of blackmail the Clintons into getting their Hollywood producer friends. Because Clinton's always has Hollywood producer friends, ladies and gentlemen, like Harvey Weinstein. Remember him. Anyway, Paula Jones' husband wants Clinton to get their Hollywood producer friends to cast him in one of their TV shows. And that's what's motivating him to get his wife to get out front and make these accusations about Clinton. It's all kind of like this blackmailing scheme. And, of course, Ryan Murphy goes right for it because it's the bizarre, random quirks of human ambition that makes this so intriguing. That and the nasty, two-faced, hypocritical portrayals that are on the horizon. And you knew Ryan Murphy was going to take the deep dive into the Linda Tripp character, and she's the White House secretary who got fired and then randomly met Monica Lewinsky at the Pentagon and realized that this 22-year-old intern will be her ticket to get some big-time revenge against the Clintons. Murphy sets up that relationship in the very first episode, and you can just anticipate how Linda Tripp will use Monica Lewinsky to get back at the Clintons who fired her from the White House, and then the Republicans in turn will use Linda Tripp to launch the investigation that they hope will bring Clinton down, and none of it, absolutely none of it, will have anything to do with anything that's real in the lives of ordinary American citizens. It will not get anybody health care or a job or education, or a cleaner environment, or better schools, or safer streets. It's just all about raw ambition and hate. So as a TV show, man, I eat it up. Why? Because it exposes the great fraud of American politics. And I'm hooked. I'll be watching. Commercials and all. We got a great show today, everybody. Monroe Anderson. It's Wednesday, so Monroe Anderson will be with us. He's no fan of Bill Clinton. Well, actually, I should hold back and let Monroe uh, do his own talking on that one. And then our man from Texas, great political strategist, Jason Lee, will be joining us, weighing in on the insanity of Texas politics, the insanity that's led Texas to essentially outlaw abortion and pretend they're not outlawing abortion with their vigilante law, their bounty hunter law. We talked about it yesterday with Jim Coogan, and we're going to get to the politics of it. Uh, Jason Lee's know Texas about as well as anybody, political strategist, has worked in Texas and Chicago. Will this work out for Republicans? Will outlaw lawing abortion in one of the largest, I think the second largest state in the country, giving a model of, for other states to follow in terms of outlawing abortion, will that be the ticket for success for Republicans? Jason Lee will answer those questions 
when he's on. And maybe we do a little Bill Clinton talk as well. I'm sure Jason Lee, as young as he is, has a few thoughts about Bill Clinton. And, of course, if Jason Lee's on the show, we'll do a little discussion about crime. Uh, we always discuss crime. Democrats, City of Chicago, when Jason Lee's on. So Monroe Anderson and Jason Lee will be here when we return. Anderson has joined us so skillful so nimble with the computer just we have a new system today ladies and gentlemen uh as I said already uh, Dr. D Dennis taking a much deserved much needed day off uh DJ Nate sitting in firm so we have a new system I thought it might rattle Monroe Anderson but the pride and joy of Gary Indiana does not rattle easy and he handled it like I said I thought it was Mark Zuckerberg uh dealing with this internet so Monroe welcome back to the show I, I have a son who's a computer engineer so it's it, it, the the genes have rubbed off on me. <laughs> <laughs> if I had the money, if I had the money, I would hire that kid in an instant. But this kid, he makes more money than me and Monroe put together. For sure. So he's well beyond. <laughs> but that kid is a genius. Well, he has two sons who are geniuses, but we, we'll hold off on uh, extolling the virtues of Monroe's uh, sons. So much to talk about, Monroe. Uh, I opened uh, with my riff, uh, paying uh, homage to Ryan Murphy, the first episode of impeachment. And uh, I know you you did not feel as strongly about it as I did. Uh, that first episode, uh, you were a little bored by it. But I got to tell you, Monroe Anderson, I feel, get your thoughts on this in the most general way, that the Bill Clinton Monica Lewinsky debacle and everything that came from it and leading up to the impeachment is such a, is so relevant today on so many different levels that I find it rewarding in a sense to watch Ryan Murphy's dramatic reenactment. It just explores the deviousness of democratic politicians like Bill Clinton and the deviousness, utter, diabolical, dark and dirty <laughs> Republican tactics that are still at play by the Republican Party who pretend that they're upholding all these great truths when they're trying just to exploit stuff uh, to get political advantage. That's how that's how I view it. How do you view it? I've, I, I view it pretty much the same, except uh, we've had Trump. And therefore, anything that Clinton did, anything that the Democrats did, is junior varsity compared to what's going on now. And so, you know, so this is this uh, reliving this is sort of like going to um, a high school championship, uh, right? Right when the, um, the NBA playoffs are in process. <laughs> That's actually pretty good, man. You could watch LeBron James of right. dishonesty and deviousness, Donald Trump, or you could watch the who's like a high school player that everybody would know. Yeah, you know the JV version uh, with Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton, uh, you're right. <laughs> oh, you mean high school? Oh, we don't know, right? Exactly. We we don't know who would be the JV version of basketball. <laughs> 
Yeah, I don't want to. You know, I know a lot of great high school players, but I don't want to put their names out there and say they're as sleazy as Clinton. Clinton. No, no I'm talking about in, in comparison of. Yes, no, I understand. Yeah, not sleazy. I mean, all those Clinton was sleazy. I don't want to rob him of that. He was sleazy. No, you don't want to take that away from Billy C. And uh, in the first episode, he only comes in at the very end of the first episode, uh, which builds, I urge everybody, if you're a political junkie, you you should watch it. You should just watch it, just have an opinion about it. Uh, But the first episode really lays, uh, sets it up, Monroe, for the tactics that the Republicans follow because they make it very clear that their whole plan in using the sexual escapades of Clinton that Clinton was keeping secret, but it was like an open secret. Their whole plan is to uh, get a lawsuit filed in which Bill Clinton will have to testify. And then once he testifies, they just know he's going to lie because Bill Clinton can't help but lie every time he opens his mouth and then they can nail him. And they make that clear that this was like in a chess match. That's what they were trying to do from the get go. Yeah, well, that, you know, depends on what your definition of the is is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what, what was that I, response? I, I Did you have sex with him? Yeah, right. right. <laughs> with that woman. <laughs> yeah. So uh, anyway, know, but uh, I, I by I the way, that said, and I, I may have said this on one of your shows a long time ago. But I, I was told by um, this kid who was working at, at a uh, to get marijuana legalized in Illinois. This was twenty some years ago. But he told me that his 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 boss had been at Oxford when Clinton was there, and Clinton was known for being very fond of marijuana brownies. And so when he's asked about um, marijuana, he said he had tried it, but he didn't inhale. And so that was technically true. He didn't inhale. He gobbled. He digested. (laughs) He gobbled. (laughs) No, but Monroe, that I've forgotten that one. I didn't. I didn't inhale. And that is classic Clinton. So full of it. Instead of just saying, yeah, I tried it, yeah. and I've quit. And, uh, but, of course, he can't say that because he's leading the war on drugs where like thousands and thousands of black people are getting thrown into jail right. for doing what he did. So he can't say that. So he has to pretend he never did it with this like little sleazy, walking, nuanced, walk the, the line. Well, you know, technically what I'm saying is true. Yeah, I am. Um, <laughs> Uh, That's a pretty good imitation. (laughs) Thank you. uh, (laughs) What can I say? Um, (laughs) All right. We'll uh, have plenty of time uh, to talk about Bill Clinton uh, in the weeks to come because I know that show is uh, it's 10 parts. And uh, I know Monroe is a junkie like me. He'll be watching it. Uh, Let's talk about uh, California for a moment. And uh, we took the deep dive yesterday with the political activist, uh, uh, Bruce Williams, from California, who's predicting uh, that uh, the Dems will prevail in, in the recall election. Uh, he says polls are already uh, showing that that's the case, that 
Dems are getting their message out. I hope he's correct. I hope this Republican tactic doesn't work, even though I'm no fan of Governor Gavin Newsom, that's for certain. But one thing I just, I need your opinion on, and I took the deep dive this week, and I told you this yesterday, Larry Elder, who, if the Republicans prevail, will probably be the next governor of California. Monroe, this man is out of his freaking mind. I watched him over the weekend, watched a little too much of him, I got to tell you. Your thoughts on Larry Elder and what he represents? Well, he represents um, self-hatred. As a, as, as a black person speaking and working against the interests of black people. He's an opportunist. Um, he, he's a little on the wacko side. <laughs> and he has about as good a chance of becoming governor of California as I do. And I don't live there. I live in Chicago. So you don't think, uh, well, first of all, yeah, I, I disagree with that last point. Uh, he may not have a, a great chance of becoming governor of California. He's got about a better chance than you because at least he's on the ballot. You're not on the ballot. Right. So there's no chance exactly. of you getting exactly. a, uh, elected. Right. Well, you, you <laughs> so know, you just don't think right, the, you know uh, the recall that, will prevail. Yeah, that Dan Rather line, um, he got his, uh, his chances of slim to none and slim just left out. So... <laughs> I mean that he the, the the ballots that have already been cast are running um, very positive for Newsom, it, uh, two two to one, and so he has a, a a lead already, and now he started spending his war chest uh, to tell Californians, don't do it, and you know one of the things. Um, that they're pointing out in, in this war chest is that um, Diane Feinstein, who's the state senator, one of the state sen- I mean, uh, senators in Washington, in Washington, is has Alzheimer's or dementia or something, and so she 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 is not functioning as well as she did years ago. And she's also elderly. And so should she die and we have a governor elder, he's already said that he's going to appoint a Republican, period. So that changes the dynamics in Washington. Uh, and you know, and the, as you and I both know, the Democrats are pretty sheepish and ineffectual with a 50-50 vice president advantage. And so if the Republicans get there, uh, get a a Republican senator, another Republican senator, I think job one for them is going to be to impeach Biden. And all the rest of the jobs are going to be to stop any progressive um, notion we thought we had and load up the course with more right-wing judges. Yeah, that's absolutely. So um, that uh, that just uh, heightens the stakes, so to speak, uh, with that recall. And uh, as I said, Bruce Williams says the message is starting to get through and that people have figured out or Dems have figured out uh, that a no vote is 
actually the one that they should make. Uh, and what you, what Monroe was alluding to is the fact that uh, voting by mail, uh, the the early voting by mail ballots are coming in from uh, Democratic areas. And so this, we're going to be talking about this with Jason Lee in a little while. Uh, Monroe, Jason Lee, political strategist, will be joining us uh, shortly from Texas. But this is compounding the advantage that the Democrats had in the 2020 election uh, with vote by mail. The Republicans, they're sticking to the Donald Trump uh, playbook about vote by mail, where you profess that it's illegal and it's corrupt and it's uh, it's what contributed to the theft, and I have that in quotes because it's a freaking lie, of the election in 2020, and so they're not emphasizing it, uh, which I think is a huge mistake on the part of Republicans, not that I care about Republicans' mistakes, but that's what's happening in California as well, and so what the Republicans are hoping is that there is a massive turnout uh, at the polls. Jason Lee has joined us. Jason Lee has joined us. Uh, I'll finish up with Monroe briefly with this question, then we'll turn bring Jason into the conversation. Uh, but Monroe, the Republic, the the Republicans are clearly hoping that there is a massive turnout on election day in California to offset the gains, the advantages that the Democrats have with absentee ballots. Your thoughts about that Republican strategy? It's not going to work. You know, they, they it's a hail mary on their behalf. This is what's happening. Uh, the Republicans don't have anything positive in, in, in their policies. I mean, they're, they're, they're just running a negative and, and, and uh, a lying and cheating ca- uh, campaign uh, of all sorts, campaigns of all sorts all across the country because they don't have anything that is appealing to the modern American voters. And so they're desperate, and and, and they're, they're they're what they're doing is stacking the deck. That's the best they can do because they they have no message that's good for America. None. So well, the only message that they really have in California, and I don't think it'll prevail. Uh, but the only message is that the Democrats are hypocrites. Uh, the Democrats prescribe masks and social distancing for other people and don't abide by it themselves. So they're trying to take advantage well, of the, of the attitude. Governor, the governor, uh, the big screw up. I, you know, I, but, yeah. I mean, see, the problem the Republicans have is Trump. I don't care what a Democrat does, how hypocrite or anything, they're following Trump and all the things Trump did. Um, Anything anybody else can do, Trump has done worse. All right, let's bring uh, Jason Lee in, a political strategist. Uh, Jason Lee joins us, uh, seems like every other month. Uh, He is our man in Texas, born and raised in Texas, does works campaigns in Texas. Uh, And then I guess dealing with Texas politics wasn't bad enough. He decided to come to Chicago and get a little expertise in Chicago politics. Uh, So he's probably the only person in America, Monroe, who can answer this question. Which state is sleazier when it comes to politics, Illinois or Texas? Uh, And with that as an introduction, welcome back, Jason Lee. Thanks, Ben. Good good to see you, Monroe. Uh, Sleazier, I'd have to say... Illinois, when you just if you if you define sleazy as kind of what we tend to think in political terms, corruption, 
you know, criminality amongst elected officials, different kinds of fraud. Um, but obviously, if you look at, you know, from a policy perspective, <laughs> policies that make you feel sleazy, uh, obviously, Texas uh, is, 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 is at the top of that list right now, particularly. All right, let's uh, take the deep dive with Texas. Uh, and uh, Jason, the last time you were on the show, we analyzed their election bill. Uh, and at the time, it hadn't passed because Dems, uh, the Democratic legislators, had fled the state of Texas. They were in Washington. They were all over the country. Uh, that was the last time you were on the show. Uh, subsequently, uh, the Dems returned and the bill passed along with the infamous abortion bill. We'll get to the abortion bill later. Let's start with the election law bill. So what are, again, the consequences, consequences of that election law bill and how are they playing out uh, so far in Texas? Well, I'll start with the second part. The way it's playing out is that as soon as uh, the governor signed the bill, um, which was yesterday, multiple lawsuits were filed um, and uh, against the legislation in federal court and the Department of Justice um, also um, insinuated that they would be looking into the legislation. So it did trigger an immediate uh, litigative response, which is which is to be expected and, and, and good. Obviously, with the Supreme Court that we have and some of the previous rulings they've made uh, on election laws, like for Arizona, we, we, we only have so much confidence that that will be the remedy. Uh, the other thing that happened was there was a renewed you know, call for federal legislation, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act has passed um, the, uh, the, uh, the House and is waiting a vote in the Senate. Um, that will restore um, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which would allow all of these bills to, be, to, to go through pre-clearance. And this uh, Texas bill might have been eliminated uh, you know, before it even off the, got off the ground uh, if pre-clearance was still uh, 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 the law of the land. Um, the bill... You know, it, 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 it empowers, you know, poll watchers to potentially do uh, voter intimidation. Uh, it eliminates some of the voting expansions that were implemented in response to COVID. It makes it more difficult to uh, vote by mail. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and a couple other things that, that added all together put more pressure on, on people's access to, the, to, the, to, the, to, to voting. Texas already had some of the tougher voting laws um, uh, in the state. And in fact, as someone who didn't live in the state and tried to vote absentee, there were several elections where I found it easier to actually fly back to state uh, and vote than try to figure out how I was going to get an absentee ballot in. So it's already somewhat difficult, uh, and this makes it more difficult. Um, and, and, and groups are trying to activate and figure out how they can, um, you know, uh, Assuming that the litigation, you know, regardless of the litigation, we need to get folks registered. We need to get them out to vote and figuring out strategies to do so. Wow. The, the, the part of the bill uh, that, well, I guess the whole bill disturbs me, but that part that you uh, alluded to, uh, Jason, where it empowers poll watchers uh, to intimidate voters. Uh, this has uh, relations, of course, to the abortion bill. Uh, but talk a little bit about that. What do you think the consequences of empowering poll watchers will be? Do you think there'll be actually inst incidences where uh, MAGA poll watchers go into uh, election no, booths? I, no, they, they won't. They, they aren't allowed in election booths. 
they, they, they aren't allowed in election booths, obviously. They're not allowed in the voting facility. They're allowed, you know, at, at some distance or, or, you know, some near proximity. Um, you know, there already was a provision where you can go in and, and get certain counts periodically. But this basically, what this did was it kind of, the, the election judge who operated the polling location used to have broad discretion to basically get rid of these people. Uh, and now that discretion is taken away. So people will be able to, you know, do things without being, you know, as long as they don't theoretically go too far. So I, it's hard to know how it will play out. You know, I mean, I'm sure there'll be instances where people do show up and they're kind of standing there with a sign or something. You know, I don't know what they think they're looking for. My fear is that there will be instances that are more confrontational. Um, and because this is Texas, it is not the case that you're going to see like, a kind of like, you know, sectional intimidation, like people in rural areas coming with guns. Unfortunately, in Texas, everyone has guns. So no matter, it'll be more of a standoff situation, I fear, than a kind of intimidation. And I, and I just don't want to see that, um, you know, turn into something uh, really catastrophic. So that's part of my fear is just the general ratcheting up. Um, because at the same time, on September 1, there was another law in Texas that, that, that went in uh, that, uh, w- which is the permitless carry. So now you can, uh, carry a gun without a permit. And so if you add those two things up, you know, there, there's definitely some, 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 uh, cause for concern. Wait a minute. So just, I wasn't prepared to talk about this, but you just threw it out there. I'm looking at Monroe like, did you hear about this? Oh yeah. Permitless carry. <laughs> right. Car- <laughs> Texas exactly. is insane. Jason yeah. Lee, you know what? Illinois may be sleazier than Texas, and I'm still not conceding that. Right. But definitely, Texas is more insane than a permitless carry. Right. In other words, you just you can just put the gun in. You don't have to. You know, back in the days, you have to have a permit to get the gun. Right. Back in the days of the wild, wild west, when you went into a bar, you had to check your gun at at, at, at the door. They pick it up or something. And they don't even have that now. There, there, there will still be, there will still be some, I mean, private businesses and other places, I think are allowed to have prohibitions. Uh, you know, the enforcement mechanism is not clear on that. Uh, but, um, you know, what, what's happening in, in, in Texas is that, um, Texas is at the vanguard right now, obviously of a kind of proactive conservative movement. Right. So if you look at all of these laws, they're not necess- they're not really Texas innovations. They're laws that have been percolating around the conservative activist base. You know, the permitless carry, the abortion laws. These are all laws that are percolating around these different interest groups. And the Texas Republicans and the governor decided that they want to be the ones to finally take some of these ideas that have been percolating and push them as far as they can because it's Texas, because they're, you know, the, the vanguard of the movement. And then that will inspire all these other states to then follow suit. But they want to move from kind of the middle of the conservative movement to the vanguard of it. And that's what you're seeing in the last, particularly in the last legislative sessions. Yeah, but it has an um, Abbott's ratings dropped to 42 or something like that. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Um, so, so, right. So what the ironies of this is, as the Republican conservative movement is decided to kind of assume their position at the vanguard of, of, of the, of the national conservative movement, the state is trending in the opposite direction. You know, uh, Hillary Clinton lost, uh, Texas by 9%. Uh, 
Joe Biden only lost it by five and a half percent. You know, the, 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 the census report shows that urban areas are growing at the expense of rural areas. The state is becoming more diverse. Um, and so when you do the polling, uh, yeah, the governors, a lot of the governor's uh, policies are unpopular with the statewide electorate. He's at 50 percent disapproval, well, 41 percent uh, approval. That's the lowest he's ever been. The problem is, if you look at where he has where he is in the Republican electorate, he, all of those policies are very popular. And right now his focus is on one, establishing himself again as the head of the lead of the national conservative movement with an eye toward 2024. And secondly, to make sure that he has no problems in the Republican primary. I assume his strategy is that by the time you get to the general election, a couple of things will be the case. One, Democrats will not have been able to produce an acceptable candidate. Two, people will have forgotten or, you know, the temperature would have been lowered on a lot of these policies that are happening now and people would have kind of settled back down. Three, you know, you're benefiting from just your usual fact that in a Democratic presidential midterm year, you expect the Republicans to do better. And four, uh, because of his fundraising prowess, uh, he's going to have probably $120, $150 million. And he thinks that'll be able to, you know, suppress whatever challenge uh, arises. Of course, now the problem with that thinking is that you have another Republican governor uh, with the same plot, and that's uh, DeSantis in Florida. So by the time we get to uh, 2024, you're going to at least have two uh, crazy men who, 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 who have um, given their soul to the devil and are uh, following a death series with how they're handling the virus and other things. And so even if they both are, are popular, they're going to cancel each other out. Um, but I, I think both of them are going to be um, out, of, out, of, out of contention by the time we get there. Because they both have low ratings. And if the Democrats can get their stuff together and actually um, pass some of this um, pending legislation, they're going to be very popular next year and in 2024. Jason, what's your thoughts about that? You know, I've embarrassed myself so many times in recent years to be in the, so I I opted out of the prediction business. I'm still in the analysis business, but. I, um, you know, I think Monroe raises some good points and some good and, 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 and definitely some potentialities. Um, and, and there, and, and by 2024, you know, there could be headwinds. Like, like you said, if, if the Democrats agenda is not only passed, but by then actually showing some dividends in people's lives, you know, it may end up being a mute point. Um, but you know, again, like it's hard for me to, to, you know, to, to put anything past these guys because, you know, the, we've seen crazy things happen, you know, and, 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 um, and unfortunately it's not always linear, you know, it's not always linear between policy and politics. Right. And that, and that creates a challenge. But first, first of all, I think the Republicans are in the process of jumping the shark. They're in such bad, bad, uh, shape. And, and, um, 
So I, I, I think the Democrats are going to have so much ammunition to use against them. You know, because with the um, with the abortion laws that the Republicans are pushing through, and with Texas uh, leading that, of course. Uh, Black women have already been solidly against the Republicans. And now suburban white women, their numbers are growing uh, because the vast majority of women, uh, even those who don't uh, believe in choice, don't like the idea that if um, they were raped, they'd have to bear the child of the rapist. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's, that's certainly true uh, that, 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 that this is gonna, could, could definitely rankle a number of people that the Republicans have historically counted on, suburban women being first on that list. All right. Uh, you said, uh, Jason, something, I wrote it down. You said uh, not, it's, not, uh, it's not always linear between policies and politics. And right now, the law passed in Texas, signed by the governor, effectively outlaws abortion, bans abortion, uh, and criminalizes abortions uh, and that take place after six weeks. They deputize people. Monroe and I have talked, we've talked about this a lot on the show with a lot of different people. Uh, they've de- deputized ordinary citizens uh, to uh, file lawsuits if they feel they have evidence of anybody who's contributed to a woman getting an abortion. Uh, and they, you could sue the doctor you could sue, who does the abortion. You could su- sue uh, the Uber driver who drives a woman to the abortion. You could sue the friend who accompanies the woman to the abortion, et cetera, and so forth. They exempt the woman. They think that's going to help them with those suburban uh, women, I guess, by exempting the woman from punishment in this particular instance. So that's the policy uh, in, that's just been enacted. That's where Texas is at right now. In your opinion, Jason, how will that play out politically in the state of Texas? Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to say, man. I mean, you know, a, a, abortion is one of those highly polarized issues where you've got, you know, a, a group of people who are extremely, you know, pro-choice and another group who are extremely uh, anti-abortion. and Both are passionate and, and active. And then you've got a lot of people in the middle who are feel a certain kind of way, but far less motivated by that particular issue. They, they would rank it lower. Um, you know, if you think about Texas, you know, a lot of people don't realize this, but, you know, most of people, if you know the name Wendy Davis, right, which was a, a state senator in Texas who did a filibuster to stop an abortion law um, in, in Texas in 2014, well, when she did that, there was about 40 abortion clinics in Texas before this bill was, uh, uh, when, in, when, when, uh, you know, was enacted the most recent one, there were only 15, uh, abortion clinics left in the state. And so you've already seen in the last six years, a dramatic, uh, reduction, um, in access to abortion and, and, you know, you know, it, that has coincided with some democratic gains, right? For 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 several issues, for, for several reasons, particularly in large counties, it's it, it's also coincided at the statewide level with a shrinkage of Republican 
vote margin. Um, but they've still been winning, and it's not clear that that has been the primary issue in any of those elections. So, you know, you can make arguments on both sides as to how this will ultimately impact them in the state. Um, again, like Texas has a growing minority population, mostly Latinos. Uh, their attitudes on abortion are um, different, I think, than than just your standard, you know, Democratic voter. You know, there's so there's some there's some wiggle room, I think, that they have on this uh, that they might not have in certain other states. So, and and again, the Latino pop, they're they're they're. It's not just that the Latino, but they're also you know, conservative Latino populations in the state, particularly in the Valley. So you just have, you have some opportunities and some windows and there are other issues that frankly are more, at least according to polling are more uh, uh, prevalent and they're going to try to focus there. Like they still have an advantage on border issues. They still think they have an advantage on crime. Like their mission is to shift to make sure that the election focuses on the terrain in which they're strong. Yeah. Except the problem is with this, this abortion bill, and the fact that you can now have um, bounty hunters tracking down people, uh, nobody likes that. Or, or, or well, let me, let me start again. Most voters don't like the idea that you you have no skin in the game, but you can you can make some money off of um, tracking somebody down and dragging them in the court. Uh, it's just a, it's a, a lot of Republicans are worried about this nationwide. And there's this, this um, realization that if this bill, if, 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 if the, if this practice stands, then what Democrats say in New York could do is, is use the same tactic on, on gun, gun owners. But if they, if they don't have a license or if they bought the gun from, some gun dealer or whatever, then uh, we could put a b- bounty on that. So it could, it could turn into a very nasty tit for tat nationwide uh, if this if this concept is allowed to exist. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, it, so it could. It, 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 it definitely could. A very tricky time. It definitely could, and you know. <laughs> It'd be interesting if 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 they if they did look at something and like should that. <laughs> and should yeah right but uh, but you know it was a it was a clever it was a clever design of a policy that ultimately um, you know it, it worked as they wanted it to um, because it, the Supreme Court refused to stay it and it wasn't that the police it, what and it, it worked how they wanted because it wasn't that the court was saying that this invalidates Roe. The court was saying that based on the way this law is structured, we don't have jurisdiction. And that's exactly what they were trying to do by taking it from government enforcement to civil enforcement. Yeah, right. Exactly. But the problem is what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And so we can do the same. I mean, progressives do the same with our issues. And the the, the other um, part of this is the um, KKK clause law that, uh, with um, bounty hunters uh, tracking down people that they can be put into place. I mean, there, there are some protections, but the, the thing is the Democrats 
have to be a lot more aggressive than they've been. You know, they're still they're still doing too much hand wringing. They're not acting like they are in charge, and they are, they should be in charge. Well, well, this is one of my favorite themes in general, uh, Monroe. That I'm going to pick up on and, and kick it to Jason on this. And my sense from afar about Texas Democrats statewide, uh, Jason, and feel free to disagree with me if you do. They're so cautious. And they try to present themselves as the reasonable alternative to Republican uh, outrageousness. I'm thinking about Beto O'Rourke's campaign, uh, his Texas senatorial campaign as opposed to his presidential campaign when he got so desperate he said he was going to go take your guns which was sort of throwing <laughs> taking an extreme point of view to put it mildly uh and I always get the feeling that um that Democrats running in Texas have subscribed to the Barack Obama Bill Clinton Rahm Emanuel playbook that you don't there's like a center that you can appeal to and the left will just go along because they have no choice. But if you can win that center over by being reasonable and even criticizing the left flank, uh, you will prevail in elections. I've not, I, I can't, I can't remember where that's ever worked uh, in the state of Texas, uh, that particular attitude. So uh, please address that, uh, Jason. Am I wrong? Am I, am I being unfair to Texas Democrats by uh, a linking this uh, tactic to them? Yeah, I mean, I would I would say that the problem with the Democratic Party in Texas is that like the it's just it's like structural. It's just like infrastructure, money, just like institutions like they atrophy. Right. Like we talked about this before, which is that when, you know, look, the South, like the South, like since the civil rights movement, the South has been like moving Republican, like. LBJ said it, that was just like fait accompli, but like it didn't happen like immediately in terms of a full sweep. Like there was like a 30 year period where like the Republicans had to like come, right? We, you know, Texas last Democratic governor was in lost to, to George Bush in 1994, right? It wasn't like 1968, right? So like we had Democratic governors, we had Democratic statewide electeds, and even the lieutenant governor under George W. Bush was a Democrat. The thing is that the, the Republicans, you know, we've had we had Bush style Republicans. You know, we had these kind of, you know, good old boy. They weren't super partisan. They were about money and 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 business and kind of on certain cultural things. They were seen more moderate than the average Republican. Right, conservative, conserv compassionate conservative was was George W. Bush's deal. And that doesn't mean they weren't doing things that were bad, but they were they had a different style. And because of that. Once they took power, there wasn't the same energy and motivation within the different democratic infrastructure to say, we got to stop these guys. We got to stop. We got to fight these guys. It was like, well, it's going to be too hard to fight them and we can work with them. Right. They're still like they, we, we're sharing power to a certain extent, even in state government. I never forget when when George Bush ran for president, there was a group of Texas Democrats who actually went to the Republican National Committee to defend George Bush from attacks about Texas because they had been working with them so closely. So anyway, I digress. But the point of the matter is, to me, the problem is like the fighting, the infrastructure that you would have in a party to really like try to compete for power atrophied because folks thought things were kind of OK. And then when the Republican Party made this dramatic shift, you're in a position where like now it's not OK. 
but you're nowhere near where you have to be to challenge it like electorally. In terms of the tactics you're referring to, because the infrastructure is not there, most of what happens is like there's no strategic around like who's running and, and what they're saying. It's like whoever wants to run runs and whatever they want to say, they say like it's, it's, it's not like it really has to do with whatever individual decides to do whatever they're going to do as opposed to some tactic. Now, there are different factions who think one way or the other, but like neither none of those factions have enough strength to really shape what the message is or dictate any of that stuff. And if you're going to do anything, you're going to have to get everybody anyway. So you're not going to really be trying to polarize one dim against the other. You're just going to be trying to pick a set of messaging that you think is viable. So it, it, it's more so just we're not even at the point where those conversations really matter as much like they do in Illinois. And you've got progressives and other people always fighting in Texas. Like there's there's rudimentary things we need to figure out first before we're going to figure if we're going to do this. Well, yeah, well, what happened What happened 30 years ago or so was that the Koch brothers and others figured out that uh, while everybody was fighting over who should be in Washington, they went to these small towns and, and counties uh, from state to state and started investing in right-wing candidates. And so they control all these various um, state houses now as a result of that that strategy and what's happening now which is really interesting is steve bannon uh wrote uh, this email that's been passed around nationwide that what republicans should be doing now is running for everything from dog catcher to uh, state legislator uh, they should they should register as uh, for, for uh, being um, at, at the voting, voting booths as a judge. Uh, they should, but they should be controlling all these things. And so there's been this incredible increase in people running for Republicans, right-wing Republicans, running for very small positions uh, so they can control it from the grassroots up. And um, I don't think Democrats are paying enough attention to this right now. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. What's your sense of how Democrats are doing uh, on that front in Texas? I mean, the, the, the issue is like, it's just, it's polarized, right? So Democrats control large counties, cities, the Republicans control everything else. And you haven't like you haven't yet got to a point where there's enough like you're getting you're you're moving in that direction but the population and the vote stuff is still somewhat skewed towards the rural and yeah i would agree that those folks have become more radicalized that some of those folks on the ground have become more conservative the national conservative movement has probably been more effective at uh, really focusing like through the party apparatus, because again, most of these, a lot of this down ballot stuff is officially nonpartisan, right? But the Republican party has still decided that even though it's technically nonpartisan, we're going to focus on it and, and do it as a way of making sure that, um, that we can anchor these, these, these spaces, um, you know, cause they're, they're looking ahead, you know, part of the though, like, and I always say this cause people give the Republicans, I think a lot more credit than deserves. Part of the problem is that the Republicans have a very limited agenda. Like they don't have a lot of other things to worry about, but the means and processes of like control, like taking power and holding it. 
because there's nothing else. They just want it for its sake in order to be a bulwark against the stuff. And then there's like, yeah, there's like a few activist Republican things that will try to move some stuff back and like push progress back. But for the most part, like if, if, if Mitch McConnell takes the Senate, like he doesn't want to achieve anything. He wants to put some judges in, maybe cut someone's taxes, and that's it. If you stop him to do anything else, he doesn't care. He didn't care to begin with. Whereas Democrats are trying to do politics, but also everything else. Govern, pass all these laws. I work with you know, local Democratic leaders, like the, like the person who, who runs Harris County, which is the largest county in Texas, right? Like her days are consumed with trying to like do policies that help people and, and new initiatives and how do we keep people in their housing and what are we doing on COVID and what's this other... Th- the time left over to plot and strategize and plan like the statewide political strategy, which extensively like this person might be the one you might expect to do it. Like in some ways you could argue, you know, she's the most powerful democratic elected in the state running the largest County, like is not there. Right. You know what I'm saying? And it makes it harder. You know, it's just a structural disadvantage is that when you're actually trying to achieve things, it can become more difficult to focus on all these kind of things that, that, that are not about really achieving anything, but just, the, the, the pure consolidation of power. And, you know, I, I want to say this carefully because I think it might be overstated, but like the example I would, I would compare it to is like, if you look at, you know, Mike Madigan for many years, he was very much focused on the maintenance of power and he was excellent at that. Right. He was singularly focused. The critique was, okay, you have the power, but what are we actually advancing and doing Right. And sometimes there's a tension between that that singular maintenance and, and, and building of power and the actual wielding of it. And sometimes those things can be in conflict. Yeah. And but going back to the, the going back to the Bannon uh, email that he sent out to everyone that, that is um, has gone viral. Uh, one of the things he, he he told them was that you have to run for election judges, make yourself a candidate. And so um, next year, you're going to have a lot of MAGA types as judges in in these um, swing states who get to um, make calls that are not going to be balanced or nonpartisan. And, uh, you know, we're just now becoming aware of it. And I don't know what the solution to that is, except to make sure that our, our people also uh, become judges. More, yeah. more of them. I, and I think part of the, the part of the reason Republicans are doing that is because our folks have actually historically been disproportionately the judges um, for all kinds of reasons. You know, the judges get paid a little bit of money. You know, we have like some low income folks who tend to be, you know, do that kind of work, et cetera, et cetera. So I think what Bannon is trying to do, on at least on that free point, is try to catch up because it's historically, I think if you were to poll, I think election workers, I think it would probably skew Democratic until obviously this, this concerted effort. Yeah. But the difference is being Democrats, uh, there was a tendency to be more fair for sure for sure and that's hard the are not going to do that yeah that's not what they're going to show yeah. up at the party yeah and it, and, and it's, it's it's structural right because it's like again it's like you can't for example like we have 
So like Republicans, like if Republicans get power, it's a guarantee that they're going to gerrymander lines when they have redistricting, right? Like it's a guarantee. The only time Republicans will call for something like fair maps is in a situation where they think they can't get power. So it's like the next best alternative to take the power from Democrats. Meanwhile, we have Democrats who will advocate for a fair map or a or, or independent commission, even when Democrats are in power. Right. Because they believe that that is fundamentally fair and that's the right thing to do. But those are our voters. Those are the people who contribute money. Like, you you know, those are those are people who are part of the party. So it's like hard to say, well, we should just yeah, you know, we should be ruthless. But we've got a percentage of our party that we need to win who actually doesn't want that kind of politics. I mean, to go back to the Madigan example, like he was very effective at wielding power, but he still had so many Democrats who didn't like the way he operated, even though that he was effective. If, if that had been a Republican, you probably wouldn't have heard any Republican criticism as long as he was delivering the goods of, of, of the elections, et cetera, right? I mean, it's just a completely different election base that, that, that we can't win without, because if we lose all those people, well, we're going to lose anyway. You know, we can't we can't just alienate them because they're such a big part of our base. And I don't know how you how you deal with that just structural difference between the bases of the two parties. All right. Now I got to jump in here. I do not know. I can't speak for Texas, uh, Jason, because I, I don't all I know about Texas is what I read in the newspaper. But the number of people in the state of Illinois who jumped aboard the Fair Maps bandwagon and I'm talking about Dems, I call them Dems, or reformers, or good government types. Uh, some of Monroe's best friends are in this group, but I'm not going to name any names. Uh, these good good reformer Dem types, I don't believe they make up the base of the Democratic Party. I believe they're wealthy, wealthier. I believe they contribute to Democratic candidates. You're absolutely correct. I believe they're one of the few people that bother to read an editorial that the Tribune or the Sun-Times might write. I know I'm usually the only one who ever reads those editorials. Uh, and as such, they have a far greater voice in the mainstream media than their actual numbers. Uh, but I don't think any Democrat... You put it to a Democrat in Illinois, oh, could we screw them before they screw us? And Dems... We'll say, yeah, screw them. Now, I, but Jason, this is something that popped up. I've just watching in Illinois unfold and love to get your comments and Monroe's comments too, because Monroe's been around Chicago a long time. Not only are the Dems in Illinois uh, getting attacked from the Fairmap crowd, which who cares what they say anyway, uh, and from Republicans, but they've also, they're going to be sued uh, by black plaintiffs and Latino plaintiffs on the grounds that the legislative maps that the Dems have uh, adopted and that Pritzker has signed do not set up enough majority black and majority Latino districts. Now here, now we're getting into a conflict, a profound conflict that the Democratic Party faces, uh, Jason and Monroe, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Traditionally, to get a black candidate elected in Chicago or Illinois, you had to have a more or less what they call a supermajority district where lots of uh, black people packed into one district. That's the only way it's going to happen. That actually, when you do that, it may benefit this or that black politician, but it also benefits the Republicans because it's packing black people into one district and that minimizes their statewide power, if you follow what I'm saying. 
So this is a conflict that the Democrats are facing. What's your thoughts on this, uh, Jason and Monroe? Uh, do you are you with the plaintiffs who file the suit and want more uh, black majority supermajority districts? I it's hard for me to say because I haven't I haven't seen the map or you know what particular grievance that they have um, with the map itself and where they're thinking that that district needs to be. Right. So it, it just kind of depends on, uh, to me, it, it would just depend on the particularities, right. Of, of this specific map, because in general, like you, you, this is a, um, a complicated issue and, you know, there's always been tension, um, you know, on this and going back from the, from, 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 from the voting rights act itself and how to think about, you know, the best way to do that. So I think there are arguments that make sense on both sides. Um, but I, I, I personally, the way I would, uh, would assess it is just on a case by case basis. I think there are some scenarios where it makes sense to, to try to increase uh, minority representation. I think there are other scenarios where, where it's probably not a good idea based on what you would have to do in order to create it. Monroe, your thoughts. There, there is a theory that's taking root right now that the Republicans in their gerrymandering and and setting up these concentrated MAGA districts may lose out next year and in, to, in 2024 because uh, their votes are so consecra- uh, concentrated and with all the crazy stuff going on in the Republican Party that uh, the folks that aren't in those concentrated MAGA districts are going to be rebelling against the Republicans and what they have done and are doing. So it'll be interesting to see if that, if that comes to fruition or not. Uh, right now, it's, 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 it's an interesting theory, but we haven't seen it play out. So we'll see next year and, and, and three years from now. Well, I could tell you this, uh, there is probably to be more Democratic infighting uh, than there will be Republican infighting. That is for sure for all these reasons. And Jason, I just have to say one thing. I was taking notes on your riff on Michael Joseph Madigan, and you are absolutely correct. There was no policy. There was no ideology. There was no adherence to larger Democratic uh, goals, initiatives with Michael Joseph Madigan. It was all about power and re-electing his caucus members and holding on to the speakership. Uh, <laughs> and I know so many activists who've told me so many off-the-record stories down through the years about dealing with uh, Madigan and how he tormented them and sort of uh, tortured them, if you will, uh, delaying, even introducing one of their bills uh, or holding back votes on it and just keeping the game going for them, making them come back to him time and time again. The, the most obvious example is uh, gay marriage. Uh, I don't know uh, if you were in the state for that, uh, uh, Jason Monroe, you probably remember this, where Michael Joseph Madigan wouldn't call the, wouldn't have the vote. He had Greg Harris, the sponsor of the bill, pull the measure from the House floor because he, he, he said the time wasn't right to call the vote. And you know what he did for that? When he did that, Jason, he brought everybody back for one more year. And that was another year of fundraising. <laughs> I said, the man is no dope and no fool, uh, Jason. He's not dedicated to gay marriage. He's dedicated to Michael Joseph Madigan power. 
And then yet when the gay marriage bill was passed, all the, uh, the supporters go, thank you, Michael Joseph. <laughs> yeah, man. So, uh, all right. Uh, Jason, no ducking and dodging on this one. I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this. So this is a sneak question. Monroe's smiling because he knows what it is. Last week we had a, a fierce debate, uh, on, on our show on this day, uh, Delmarie cab, political activist, Norman Solomon, uh, political activists from California who are leading the charge against Rahm Emanuel being uh, not, uh, approved as ambassador to Japan came on the show and it was a battle. Monroe was standing strong, uh, not so much for Rahm, but saying it's not a fight worth uh, de for Democrats worth having. Delmarie was having none of that. So it was a fascinating little uh, back and forth. Uh, I, of course, am rooting like hell for Dems to vote against Rahm. Uh, what is your thoughts on this matter, Jason Lee? I think I agreed with Monroe last time, and I, and I think I'm going to agree with him again here. Um, you know, it's funny because I, you know, I, I worked in Chicago. I, I've worked with the teachers union intimately. I, I worked, you know, involved in the in the campaign against Rom and his allies in 2015, and. You know, I, so I, you know, I was on the other side, you know, of, of him, at least politically at, at a certain level, a lot uh, in my time in Chicago. And. But when when he decided not to run again, like I never even for a second imagined that he was somehow going to be diminished in the Democratic Party. Like I like I totally imagined that he would return to a kind of like senior. um you know, leadership kind of role within the party that people would still go to him for advice, that he would still be an influential player at the highest levels uh, and that he would still maybe even be tapped for roles. You know, I mean, there was really no, no breach, you know, he immediately went from like Chicago to being a talking head um, on ABC. And like he was, I knew he was talking to Kamala Harris's campaign and Biden, you know, so like, I feel like that ship had sailed to me. So like whatever he ended up getting, like was just, faded you know it was whatever like I, people i have you know like problems with rom particularly at his, his leadership of chicago but like that doesn't mean that rom has like no value or no like he has some skills like he is good at certain things so if there's some role they feel like they can use him for i'm not really too upset about it um you know, I, I don't want him to be mayor of Chicago again, to say the least. Uh, but, 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 you know, he can he can do right. something. <laughs> he, he can do yeah. he can do something uh, for his country. You know, for Joe Biden, and you know, I, I just don't have the, the 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 wherewithal to be overly concerned, especially given all the other problems we're facing. Right now, Jason, my my position was that he's not the mayor of Chicago anymore, so he got his just due. That's what he really wanted to be, uh, besides president, of course, which he won't get either. But he's he's out of the office, so if he's made an ambassador to Japan or uh, Taiwan or uh, Jamaica or whatever, it does not matter. That's not a great big deal. Uh, and I don't think it's worth uh, being a distraction, his position being a distraction to all the the crises that uh, Biden is facing right now. This should not be 
a fight over whether uh, Rom should go to Japan or not. Should not be one of those fights. Yeah, I definitely agree. Well, uh, outnumbered on my own show. How about that? <laughs> outnumbered on my own show. God dang. Well, last week it was a different story, uh, Jason Lee. I'm just going to tell you, uh, Delmarie Cobb uh, was very passionate about Monroe's. You got to see the smile on Monroe's face, ladies and gentlemen. Monroe Anderson and I will be 152 years old in a senior citizen home arguing this point, Jason Lee. We'll be arguing about Rom in Chicago and whether uh, Democrats should go after him. And anytime someone like some aide in the nursing home comes to give us our uh, juice for the day, comes by and says, oh, I'm with Monroe in that, he have this huge smile on his I told you. All right, now I'm going to drag Jason into this other one and see what he has to say about this. Uh, but he knew he knows this one's coming, so we'll close it with this one. I'm obsessively following the impeachment show uh, on FX TV. Ryan Murphy's uh, dramatic account of Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky leading to the impeachment of Bill Clinton in the 1990s. Uh, I subscribe to the theory uh, that Bill Clinton has become a uh, a caricature of an insincere Democratic politician who lies all the time uh, and can't be trusted and as such has become an effective punching bag for the Republican Party to the point where Donald Trump can lie at will and nobody holds him accountable on the grounds that, well, Clinton did it. Clinton lied. You didn't care when Clinton lied. Uh, so that is my attitude about uh, Bill Clinton and the role he has played and the role he continues to play or politicians like him play. Uh, what's your thoughts on this, Jason? Do you think I'm exaggerating Bill Clinton's detriment to the Democratic Party uh, and to politics in general? Yeah, I mean, to me, like, Bill Clinton is, you know, he's kind of, he's like the quintessential, you know, man of his era to a certain extent. And he had great uh, personal gifts and and, and, and severe personal weaknesses. Um, and that, and that to me is, 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 is kind of the story of, of Bill Clinton. Um, but I, but I see him as more of a, he was the conduit for a type of politics that was already, you know, fomenting and, and growing within the democratic party in response to, um, you know, backlash and, or, or response to basically, you know, marginalization, uh, you know, by, by the Reagan administration and the concern about, you know, would Democrats be able to win uh, nationally with, with the same set of politics carried over from the 70s and 80s? I think, like, you know, that was a question worth asking. There might have been a different way to go that still could have found a way back into power. But whoever had those alternative ideas clearly was not, you know, were not able to, uh, to succeed, you know. And, and so sometimes, you know, that, that, that's, the, that's the reality. Um, so I can't like condemn them for succeeding. Um, I don't, I definitely, there are things about him that I don't, you know, that he did that I don't agree with, but, but he was also uh, at, in an era where, where politics was shifting and the rise of cable news, the rise of, of, of a certain kind of talk radio polarization. Like he had to deal with the, 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 the coming together of that, that right wing kind of machine that, that Monroe was talking about and fully like realizing itself like all that was coming to the fore and he had to be the person 
you know, to kind of first face that down and try to deal with that. And, and, and that combined with some of his personal weaknesses created some challenges, but, you know, but he had to stand in there and deal with it. And then, you know, I think like that was the kind of the thing that Obama learned was like, obviously Obama was a different case because he was also black, but you know, when Obama ran in 08, it was kind of like, look, you know, the Clinton politics was like too cynical. They were focused on triangulation. It was too polarized. Like they saw politics as a zero sum game. There's another way, right? There's no red states. There's no blue states. We can bring this country together or there's a higher calling. And then he gets in there and it's like completely like the same, but worse. And he's like stymied at every cost and they're doing all this stuff. And it's just like, it may just be the case that like, this is just what it is now. Right. And it's just, it's toxic. It's ugly. And like that kind of, um, dream of what politics once was, you know, is not there. And so Clinton was kind of the first guy to really have to face that down, but I don't think he's necessarily the cause of it. Right. And so that, that's where I'm at, but like, I'm, I'm clearly, I'm willing to listen to critiques of the policies that, that, that he and others implemented and the outcomes, but, but I have a hard time assigning so much culpability to just him as an individual versus the kind of the context in which he was in. Uh, that's pretty well said. Monroe, do you agree with uh, with with Jason on that? Yeah, yeah. He 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 cut to the chase on it, and and you know. But again, now, it, it, and this is my being optimistic, which I'm not making a prediction on this just yet. But I believe that the Republicans have just um, gone too far, and that they they're going to pay the price next year and in 2024 big time uh because i mean they 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 have they are doing anything righteous i mean if you look at what's happening with the the um january 6th investigation and how they're handling it versus what the democrats are doing i mean it's just incredible i mean uh 15 years ago i had written a novel with this plot uh, it wouldn't get published because they'd say it was too um, fanciful and unrealistic. So I think the, the, the Republicans in their desperation and in their drive for power are going to implode. They're, they're imploding right now, but it's slow motion. Well, I'd like to believe you're correct. We'll leave it here. And uh, Jason, we'll be bringing you back to talk Texas because to the point, have the Republicans gone too far? I'll uh, close where we started. They've effectively outlawed abortion in the state of Texas. Right. And, and I would and you think other before, 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 before they did that, I would have thought that's too far. Politically speaking. Now, maybe Roe uh shielded people from having to deal with the consequences of such a, a, a law abolishing abortion and now we're coming face to face with it and we're going to come face to face with it uh throughout the country i said this to jason monroe before we went in the air i can't think of one red state in this country where a statewide official lost an election because he or she was against abortion so as an issue, it has not really worked for Democrats in statewide races. Uh, it's worked for Democrats Kentucky? in congressional races. What's that? Ben, what about Kentucky? 
where you have a Democratic uh, governor right now in a very Republican state. Well, there are Democratic uh, governors, or have been Democratic governors uh, in uh, Republican states. Right now, Louisiana has a uh, Republican, excuse me, a Democratic governor, and that's a, a, a... Joe Manchin comes from West Virginia. He used to be the governor of West Virginia, and that's a Republican state. So there are Democrats who get elected statewide, but I've never seen abortion, the issue of availability of abortion, uh, as the driving force. If anything, uh, Democrats in statewide elections, as we were talking about with Texas, move away from those contentious issues, uh, those social issues like gun control or uh, abortion rights, because they don't want to inflame the the majority of voters. They want us just sort of convince them that I'm I'm like you, just on the fringes. I'm a little different. So I'll be following this one, uh, as will Jason to see uh, i'm not making any predictions jason lee about texas i don't know enough about make and but i'm a big fan of wendy davis i remember her campaign in 2014 and when that failed i was like oh my goodness uh but this is even beyond that don't you agree jason it's hard to it's, again like it's just hard to know and you can't you can't be a prisoner of the news cycle like the election's a long way away and so we'll have to see and 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 human agency matters. Like it depends on what people do and how they organize and how they fight and how they're able to, you know, there's, there's stuff that like, it's not just, there's, there's action and activity that dictates how these things play out. Um, but Ben, before, before we go, I did want to flag one thing for Chicago listeners um, to look at um, that's in the news that may be hearing more about, you know, as it relates to the, um, some of the, you know, we've been hearing about all this crime stuff like you and I were talking about before, and it's just a drumbeat. There's a particular case that's going to be in the news around two seven-year-olds. One was, was, was killed. One was, one was injured. A six-year-old was injured in a shooting. And there's now a major conflict between the police department and the state's attorney's office because the state's attorney's office refused to um, accept the charges. And the police department is complaining and saying that they did all this work and that, you know, they, they built this case and how dare the, 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 the state's attorney not accept the charges. I just want to say it's completely bunk. And on this case, the state's attorney is 100% right. The state's attorney is not allowed to talk about these cases that are they received. But I know, and don't ask me how I know, but I know for without a doubt that these cases that they're receiving are not at all uh, uh, able to be convicted. They are not the basis of the the cases are so weak the key witnesses are you know refusing to cooperate no physical evidence no surveillance you have multiple eyewitnesses for example and, and this is not specific but i'm just telling you the type of stuff that happens in these cases you'll have two eyewitnesses with competing uh, uh descriptions of events right so they ask you what happened you say what happened two people will say two different things and then and, and neither one of them will be cooperated by other evidence. This is the kind of stuff that you can't convict on. What the police do is they say, well, this guy's a bad guy. Convict him. Well, that's not how the law works. And frankly, we don't want it to work that way. And the state's attorney has to stand up for both victims and the Constitution. Right. And, 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 and the state's attorney is getting bullied here because the state's attorney can't and is not going to go out and tell the public, look how bad. Look, look at the terrible work that the detectives are doing. But in this particular case, the detective, when they went back to him and said, look, we don't have enough here. Could you please keep trying? He said, 
I'm done with this. I want to see my family. I'm just forget about it. I don't want to do any more work on this. And in fact, the Area 5 detective begged the state's attorney to file charges, not because they had a case, but because he felt that morale was getting too low. That is not why charges get filed is because police morale is too low. They need to revamp the detective department. They need to recommit themselves to cultivating confidential informants. And they need to and they, and then they frankly need to, 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 to just focus on that and quit blaming the state's attorney for protecting the Constitution. We will not be trying to convict people based on the non-existence of evidence. So I'm asking all Chicagoans who keep hearing this time and time again of the police department blaming the state's attorney. That's not the issue. There are about 13,500 shootings. Police have only made arrests in about 2,000 of them. The majority of people who commit crimes are not because they were out on bail or the, the, the state's attorney didn't accept charges. It's because they're not getting caught. We need to catch people. We need to build good cases and convict them. And the police department has a role to play. And, and that's what I want to say, because because unfortunately, the state's attorney's office is unable to say these things uh, because of their role. But someone needs to because this is getting ridiculous. And most importantly, it's warping Chicagoans thinking about criminal justice, and, which is then reducing accountability on the police department. And there needs to be even more accountability, not just on you know reform, but on actually solving crimes, because I think we had about 10 children shot this weekend. And, 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 I, and for the life of me, Ben, I, I can't keep. You know, this this is we say it's unacceptable. But we don't mean that. I, I mean it like we have to got to figure something out uh, and we can't just keep skateboarding. Well, I um, we got uh, diverted with our talks in national politics. And uh, I should just remind people that Jason's come on the show. We've talked about criminal justice issues. We talked about policing issues. We talked about uh, crime as a political force. Uh, there's a very uh, powerful article in today's Chicago Sun-Times. I urge everybody to read it. Uh, Jason alerted me to it. I read it and absorbed it. Uh, there's two cases right now. It's not just the the case of the murder of the seven year old, which is just think thinking of saying that a murder of a seven year old. Uh, there was a murder of a four year old this weekend. Just, wow. Yep. We, we get numb uh, when we think about it. But uh, there's two cases right now. Uh, there's also a case of a man who uh, a 19 year old who was in the National Guard. Uh, very similar sort of tension between uh, the police officers who think they have a case and they think they have a suspect that should be tried. And as uh, Jason points out, the state's attorney says, you don't have the evidence we need to take this to court. I can't win a conviction with what you've given me. Uh, and so what's the point if of having the case if the the suspect is just going to walk in the end because we don't have uh, strong evidence, and um, and so yeah, it's becoming a political issue. Uh, Ray Lopez, the alderman of the Fifteenth Ward, is championing it. Gilbert Viegas, who's the alderman of the uh, I believe, do this off the top of my head, the Thirty Eighth Ward, uh, is is taking the police side. Uh, I've not seen any. Democratic, excuse me, any uh, aldermen who are championing uh, Kim Fox right now on this particular issue, uh, Jason. And Kim Fox has her own larger problems that have stemmed, oh my goodness, of just going back to Justice Smollett. So she's playing defense on these things. And you're absolutely correct. If you don't have a case, you can't win before a jury. Um, so I don't know. I don't, there's definitely, this is one. Jason Lee, where there are no easy answers, but really the police and the state's attorney, at the very least, have got to like sit down and work this out a little bit because what what as you pointed out, what was in the Sun Times, 
were uh, the police were going to were trying to uh, get charges filed without the state's attorneys signing on to it. Uh, the state's attorney uh, essentially telling the police they've not done their job fully to uh, get charges. The police saying morale is low, so let's charge. That's not acceptable. You got to be on the same team, so to speak, uh, Jason Lee. And when they're fighting each other, I don't know how anyone can benefit from this. Go ahead. You're exactly right. And I don't want to extract because I know we got to go, but you're exactly right. And again, like Ray Lopez and, and Alderman Lloyd Rodriguez and, and, and Viegas, they're listening to one side of the story. And the police are basically describing the evidence they had. But if you actually looked at what they had, I think even those guys would say, no, there's no way, right? Like when you, you, you say, all right, we, we had an eyewitness, right? That sounds impressive. But then you discover that the eyewitness is a 78-year-old person who was a, had a corner block away, and what they described was not actually what was seen on the limited surveillance tape. You can't go to trial with that witness. Any defense attorney worth anything, is, 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 you know, that, 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 that witness is getting you nowhere, right? Like, that's not but, – but what they'll say is we had an eyewitness. You see what I'm saying? And so now Lopez and Villegas are saying, well, the police said they had an eyewitness. How are we not filing charges? The state's attorney can't come out and then say, well, this eyewitness was 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 not reliable for X, Y, Z, because they're not allowed to talk about the case like that. And that's what that's the unfair aspect of this is that there are elements of this that if we could if, if people could talk about, they would see that. Yeah, they're right. These cases aren't ready. Uh, but the police are using that imbalance to basically manipulate the information flow instead of just getting back to the drawing board and working together, because. My understanding is that the state's attorney's office is willing to work with law enforcement and give them the tools they need, warrants, you know, CIs, whatever they need in order to continue to pursue these cases, uh, you know, because they can close the case or they can call it a continuing investigation. And the, and the state's attorney is willing to call it a continuing investigation to give them more time. And, and, the, and, and law enforcement is literally throwing up their hands and saying, well, screw it. We don't want to do it anymore because because you didn't take what we what we gave you and and that's just not right you know it's not about the state's attorney at the end of the day it's about the family of that seven-year-old and that six-year-old who deserve justice and if law enforcement is is getting as much resources it gets from the city we need them to step up uh, and fulfill their mission even under difficult circumstances go out and get that evidence and and let's bring these folks to justice right and it's also about, yeah it's also about black lives matter you know, the, the cops are upset because they can't shoot us at will or, or beat the living daylights out of us anytime they feel like it. Well, there's, again, there's political realities and there's political conflicts uh, outside, as Monroe was alluded to just right there, uh, outside the box of these specific cases. And I've written about this and talked about this. The, the police union, Fraternal Order Police, uh, represents... Is, is, is sort of the, the, the outpost for MAGA in the city of Chicago. And Kim Fox was elected, uh, as to Monroe's point, uh, out of protest from the Laquan McDonald shooting. So if anything, she represents uh, a more benevolent attitude <laughs> when it comes to enforcing the law and not just locking people up. And these two sides are at loggerheads, uh, the um, Fraternal Order Police was active uh, in uh, the Jesse Smollett counterattack against Kim Fox that did not work to unseat her, 
but she's still dealing with the consequences of it. So there's political realities to all this too, uh, Jason Monroe. I mean, you can't just, I mean, Chicago's a very political city. You can't just ignore the political realities that there's people going to be running. I wouldn't be surprised if Ray Lopez runs for mayor in 2023 and his issue will be crime and how the police have had their hands tied by uh, the um, judges that are won't hold people in jail. They let them out on bond and lack of prosecution. I just feel as though it's politics at this stage uh, and not law enforcement. Take it away, Jason. Yeah, you know, but but this is too big. Like this 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 is too big for politics, in my opinion. Like. We're talking about, you know, we're on track for 800 murders. You know, we've got more murders than New York and L.A. combined. Uh, we've got children being murdered. Like, this is a major, major problem. We've got neighborhoods in Chicago where the murder rate is, you know, Guatemala, Honduras level, you know, because it's so concentrated. So to me, Ray Lopez, like, I'm, I'm actually not even condemning Ray Lopez. I have many disagreements on many issues. I will say that I, I do believe that Ray Lopez cares about this issue. I do believe he cares about trying to keep people safe in the community. But all I'm asking uh, for Ray to do is to really think about what it's going to take in order to bring safety. And he's too well versed on these issues to just fall in line with police propaganda and not look into those issues himself. He needs to request a meeting with the state's attorney's office. And actually talk about some of these cases, because I think he will learn that 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 there is more work needed to build the type of cases that can bring convictions. And we need to look at what we can do if, if we need to, to help law enforcement do that. One of the biggest problems that we have in, in these cases is that you don't have good witnesses. Right. I'm, a good witness is frankly not like an eyewitness who is down the street because those things never hold up. You basically need somebody who was intimately involved in the situation, who knows the suspect, who knows what the motive is, who heard him talking. And those are the type of people that are we can never seem to find because obviously they have many reasons why they don't want to testify because they're probably somehow involved or they're gang involved or et cetera. But that's what the job of good law enforcement does is you develop these relationships, you develop these informants, you develop things to where you might have a chance to turn somebody or flip somebody or get them to give you something and participate. That's the hard part of policing. I get it. But that's ultimately what it's going to take. And we need to figure out what, what can we do to support law enforcement uh, and being able to do that. And one of the things, as Moreau talked about, is that you, you need to kind of really get back to constitutional policing. Because one of the things that completely closes that off is the amount of abuse and, and other things that meets out that so soils relationships that you can't get anywhere. Right. You've got to have some rapport. And we need people operating in these communities that are able to go out there. And build and, and build relationships that can be used over time. And if we can do that, then we will have the type of cases we need to bring some of these folks to justice. And so, all I'm asking uh, Alderman Lopez to do uh, is to is to be proactive. I mean, to be to be constructive uh, in his efforts to to bring more safety to the city. Okay, let, let, let me have a quick quickie here. When I was press secretary. Uh, the thing I learned was that the most powerful position in the CPD is detective. 
And so there were numerically, there were very few black detectives. Almost all the detectives were, uh, were mm -hmm. white. Mm -hmm. And um, the reason for that is that's where the powers, you, you decide what the crime was, uh, who should be investigated. I mean, it's, very, it's a very important position. And therefore, blacks don't get promoted to that. Um, my guess is, is, is the numbers aren't that different now than they were 30 years ago. I don't know for sure. I haven't looked into it. But the, the thing is, um, what, what Jason is pointing out could be solved if you had more black detectives with connections in those communities where there's a problem. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to be surprised if there are a lot of detectives in those areas. I think that's a great point and, and one more thing that we need to look at. Uh, Monroe uh, Anderson, former press secretary to Eugene Sawyer, uh, mayor of the city of Chicago from 1987 to 1989. Made a hell of a mistake with sh Chicago when you didn't reelect him, in my humble opinion. Uh, and it is my show, so I get to close with my humble opinion. 3,100 shootings this year, Jason Lee, up from 2849 uh, last year. Uh, and 1,838 in 2019. And homicides so far through this year, I took the numbers down uh, because I wanted to, uh, I knew we were going to have this conversation, though I forgot to bring it up. So thank you for bringing it up. 535 homicides. So we have a serious problem here in the city of Chicago. Uh, and uh, it doesn't get any better, just to put it mildly, when the criminal, when the state's attorney's office is under siege from the police department. Uh, and you're right, uh, Jason, that you can't get into the specifics in many instances because uh, it, it would just ruin the case in some uh, in many in many instances. Uh, all right. Very good. Jason Lee, thank you so much. Monroe Anderson, every Wednesday here on the Ben Jarofsky Show. Thank you very much. Uh, and I want to thank the man, uh, DJ Nate, sitting in for Dennis. Dr. D took the day off. Did a great job uh, dealing with Monroe, Ben, and Jason and hooking us up together. So I think uh, Monroe and uh, Jason will agree when I say, DJ Nate, give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. <laughs>